Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with Leo Flowers. If you're like me, quarantined, locked up, <laughs> not locked up, but that's what it feels like, right? Um, There's it, it, so many challenges and, and obstacles. I have received so many messages from people feeling like a burden, uh, feeling like they're isolated, to feeling hopeless. Uh, However, if you go to thrivewithleo.com, I can coach you from feeling like a burden to feeling like a blessing, from feeling isolated to feeling connected, from feeling hopeless to feeling hopeful. Go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching, and we will get through this together. With that said, Let's get into the episode. I'm here with Evan Transu. Am I saying your last name correctly? Yeah, that's actually perfect. And most people don't do that. So <laughs> off yeah, to a good start. That's right. That's right. That's what happens when you go to uh, private school as a child. Uh, <laughs> you, you learn these things. Well, I don't even know if private school has anything to do with it. Because really, when I think about it, it's a lot of kids with like last name Smith and Thompson. Very easy to pronounce names. Uh Oh, there's somebody at the door. Oh, no, I honestly, I apologize. That was me knocking over my water oh. bottle. <laughs> <laughs> We're leaving that in, Evan. We're going to leave that no, that's in. That's fine. That's fine. It's authentic. It's authentic. Uh, but you, so you're an author of a mental health book that uh, catalogs your 13-year battle with mental health issues. Let's get into it, man. What's, tell me, talk to me about this book. Talk to me about the battle. What, what, sure, what, what's sure. the struggle? What's going on? So, so, yeah, I published the book just about two months ago. It was on February 4th. I think it finally came out. And the 13-year battle was actually from the five, six-year-old range till about 18, 19 years old. And, and, you know, it started for me that I dealt with panic attacks from a very young age. And that was the first mental health symptom I had. It wasn't generalized anxiety. It wasn't depression. It wasn't substance abuse. It was these panic attacks happening. And I was lucky. You know, I had a great family growing up. There was nothing to really complain about. So especially at the time, because I'm 24 now, so this is 19 years back, this wasn't something that was connected as being necessarily a mental health issue. We went to the doctor and just a good guy, you know, nothing wrong with him. But he didn't even identify that this could be a panic attack. And I think there was two aspects to that. One was, I mean, you're in this space. I think you know very well, and I'm sure a lot of the audience knows well, the change even in mental health stigma and awareness in the last 20 years is remarkable, let alone if we go 100, 200 years back. So that's one aspect. And the other aspect is I looked it up at one point when I got older and the odds of a five-year-old male having consistent panic attacks just is not very high. That's not the first thing you're going to go to. So he told my parents, hey, you just get a little too worked up um, or Evan gets a little too worked up and he's going to outgrow it. It's not something that you need to be really concerned with. And that's what really set a foundation to be a huge problem. Again, through no one's fault of their own, everyone's trying to do the best they can. But the issue was I didn't outgrow those things. And as my teenage years came on, that's when, you know, a lot more of the severe stuff started to happen. So when you say panic attack at five years old, for for people who've never had a panic attack, I mean, I'm assuming most of my listeners have had uh, some level of that. But can you describe to us what those symptoms were at that age? 
Yeah, absolutely. And it was really honestly pretty similar to the symptoms that I had when I was 14, 15. It was that pain in my chest feeling like I'm going to have a heart attack. And that was very hard to conceptualize at that age. Like I had heard the term heart attack and that was the thing that I went to of this must be what it is. But the scariest things I would always get was that shortness of breath. I just felt no matter how fast I was hyperventilating that I could not get enough breath in and that would last the entire time. I always compare it for, you know, God forbid there's someone out there listening that doesn't know what it's like. It's like you're at the pool or something as a kid when you're younger, you're messing around with your friends and you get stuck under a raft. And there's that two seconds that you start freaking out because you can't breathe and you want to get that breath and you're stuck under that raft. It's like feeling like you're stuck under the raft, except it lasts for 10 to 30 minutes, in my experience at least. And it's just horrifying because it doesn't really get much worse than that, but it obviously doesn't get better until it's over. Um, So I'd have these whole body types of things. My stomach would get upset. I'd kind of get these, um, I'd sweat a lot. My hands would get very clammy, but it was the thoughts in my head that were probably the scariest things of all. And it was just this idea that if I don't move, if I don't get out of here, if I don't leave wherever I'm currently at, something bad's going to happen to me or I'm going to die. So there's fight or flight response. And now they're calling it fight, flight or freeze, which I think is very appropriate because people do different things. I am a flight person. I just I could be anywhere. And if I had a panic attack, it is full out sprint, just running for the sake of running to get that energy out. So that's kind of what that felt like. You know, I'm glad you brought up the fight, flight or freeze because the freeze is a component that I think a lot of people misunderstand because what happens is we, we think that um, in a lot of situations, uh, they, they've noticed this, especially with uh, date rape, that because the girl has not left, the, the guy interprets that as she must want it to go further and, mm-hmm. and not recognizing that she's in that freeze response. Her, her amygdala is overstimulated and she, and she doesn't know what to do and, and I just know that I bring that up because so many people have, have t- ended their life because of some type of sexual assault or trauma. And it's just part of the conversation that's never had. But you see freeze happen in so many other instances where people go, are you just going to stand there and do nothing? And not realizing that that person is, is, is uh, you know, their, their amygdala has just been overstimulated and they just feel overwhelmed and stuck and don't know what decisions to make. So that, that freeze is, is such a, an important component to look at and study. And as so many people feel stuck and, and don't understand it, but that's why like meditation and other calming exercises are so good to get you out of that, that freeze state. So yeah, sure. fight, flight or freeze is so valuable. How did you, uh, you know, you're five years old, you're having panic attacks. Was there like a epigenetic uh, connection to this? Is there a genetic? Can you, can you, is there, can we go back even before that? Was, was mom like, you know, escaping, uh, you know, running to the border for her life? What was going on? Sure. Sure. Well, you kind of, you hit the nail right on the head because um, I'm big on, you know, the natural side of things. And I do believe that for some people, genes are loading the gun and environments pulling the trigger. And when we look back at my mom's history of health, we see a very, very similar layout, except, you know, she's 27 years ahead. So she dealt with a lot more stuff in her life than myself. But 
you know, we never really connected that until much later after I, I dealt with the worst of this stuff that it's like, okay, we're following a pretty similar path with our health here. And it wasn't just mental health. You know, I had a bunch of physical health symptoms that I don't typically talk about on um, a mental health podcast, but it is relevant because all those connected for me. You know, I had severe acne that started at nine years old. I had, uh, again, stomach issues. I had, you know, um, just like malabsorption issues. Like I was always a really, really skinny guy, couldn't put on weight. It was much more than a high metabolism. It just like nothing would work. And I'm dealing with headaches, migraines, all these other things are going on, but they just were never the top priority because mental health for me just surpassed all of those as the main point of focus. So yeah, there was definitely an aspect here. And um, once we kind of get towards the resolution part, it, there's a really interesting conversation there. That's when I discovered a lot of stuff for both myself and my mom. So it's been a, a beautiful journey once it got to the end. Uh, was there anything from your dad's side? No, my dad is probably the calmest person in the world. Um, laid back to the point of, well, he's a hard worker. Like he's not a lazy person, but he's just not someone to really get freaked out about stuff. And when I was younger, I just remember he cared so much. He's a great dad, but he just could not empathize with it literally because he's never felt anything like that at the time. I don't think. Isn't it interesting that someone who is so stimulated in their amygdala and then someone who's more stimulated in their prefrontal or, you know, just not even close to that, those two people sure. are the ones that get together, you know, as it should be, right? Complimentary. Right. <laughs> the when now and I and I don't know if this is a question you may have explored, but I, I love the fact that you said, you know, genes load the gun, the environment pulls the trigger. Uh, it, you know, uh, and, you know, an example of that is cancer, that we're all walking around with cancer genes. But it's stress, diet, et cetera, that determines uh, if that gets activated or not, if the if trigger is pulled. And so same thing with mental health issues, uh, how, you know, the environment can pull the trigger on that. My question mm -hmm. is, was there something um, environmentally even that your mom grew up in uh, or historically that uh, also may have been involved? I ask this because... My sister, uh, and, and not to put my sister on blast, but my sister discovered some things, uh, behaviors about herself that she realized were linked to her mom, but then also relinked, that were linked to the, in the neighborhood. Like, it was not just a behavior that came from my mom, but uh, a behavior that was common amongst the village, the city that my mom grew up in. So did you discover anything like that? Yes, and I will... Um um, I have no problem answering that question, but you know, that is her story. And, you know, I don't think I'm going to go into specifics, but I don't think she would have any problem with me saying, yes, uh, my mom definitely did not have the easiest life at all. Uh, she grew up in one of the worst areas that you could possibly live in, in Philadelphia. And it was a little better back then, but not by much. Um, and they definitely dealt with some hard times and there was, um, a lot more circumstances that were, again, just really unfavorable for her. And that could have been where a lot of this started if we're really going to go connect it like that. Um, and I do think that's valid. I find that stuff really interesting. But yeah, unfortunately, she had the opposite of me where, you know, she and my or herself and my dad tried to create an awesome life for my sister and I. Um, even my dad had some struggles growing up, different types, but, you know, a little tougher. And my mom, certainly that is not someone I probably would have wanted to trade places with. I'll just I'll leave it at that. Uh, fair enough. And, and you know, I also wonder if is it so much that your dad is not 
that emotional or is that he's figured out how to um, channel that differently? Does that does that question make sense? Because we yeah. often find out later on that the people who we thought were the rocks in our life or the strong person that underneath they had so much emotion going on that they just, but they felt they didn't feel safe enough to express it. If that's the right way to, to phrase it. Well, no, and it's a good question. And my dad and I have talked about certain things like that because I'm interested. I'm fascinated by personality and um, I'm not a psychologist by any means, but I'm fascinated by psychology. So we've talked about those things and he pretty readily admits that, you know, on his side of the family, although I mean, we have an awesome family, they just, for whatever reason, they kind of fell into that hard times. You just work and kind of shut up and you don't complain to the sense that he said, like, you know, he doesn't really remember a lot of people talking about or like saying, hey, I love you, even though we all know or they all knew they loved each other. That's not something they would necessarily say. So I think he recognizes that he might be a little more disconnected with that kind of stuff because of those experiences. But overall, no, my dad's a pretty I mean, he's a pretty normal guy in those regards. So I don't think he's hiding some extreme emotion behind all of it. But I mean, yes, he definitely lets out a little less than the average person. And I think he has recognized why. So I think that's the first um, thing that we can do or the best thing that we can do in any of those situations is just recognize it. And then we try to work on it over time. So, uh, you know, you're five years old, panic attacks. It's not something that's typical. You're having all these other uh, malabsorption, headaches, take us from there. What happens after that? How do we progress? Sure. So that's when we get into kind of the middle school years and throughout, you know, I'd say five to 15, it's not that I was good mental health wise. It's just that in general, it was sporadic enough that it just kind of became a joke almost. And I don't mean that anyone's saying it's funny, but that's just Evan. Like he's the warrior, right? He just gets himself a little too worked up, but he's overall fine. He does well in school. He's a smart guy. He's a nice guy. So no real problem. And the thing that the first event because it's a very clear looking back first event that changed all that was an event that I had experienced at my friend's house at around 15 years old. And we were you know, just hanging out, bunch of dudes, good time. We hung out all day long and we're about probably an hour away from having everyone get picked up because obviously we're 15. So, you know, your mom and dad drive you. But I'm sitting in his basement. We've only been down there for about five minutes and we're about to just watch a show until, again, we get picked up. Um, and I feel one of the panic attacks about to come on. Now, remember, at this time, this has still never really been identified as, hey, Evan, this is what you're experiencing when you feel those feelings. And it had probably been a little bit since I felt a full out panic attack to the point that I'm actually really freaking out. And I just lost it. And I ran upstairs in the house and we were in the basement and I'm just screaming to his mom and stepdad, you know, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Like I need to go to the hospital. Um, and I did this in front of all my friends. I didn't warn them or anything. Right. Because it hit me just as hard as it hit them. So his mom's like freaking out because of course, you know, she's watching another kid. She likes me. Um, you know, I'm close to the family. So she's treating me like as if it's her son coming up and they just rushed me to the hospital, um, herself and my buddy and, you know, everyone else is getting picked up. So like the stepdad stayed with them while they're taking me to the hospital. And as I'm driving there or we're driving there, I can start to feel a little better. And I didn't let that on though. And it's not that I was lying. I didn't want to, or excuse me, I wasn't intentionally lying. I wasn't trying to be dramatic. The reason I didn't tell them that I was starting to feel better is because I was so embarrassed 
of what I had just done, not only as a kid, but just as a dude, right? You know, you don't want to show your other dude friends like that kind of serious emotion. And I didn't know how to explain it, but I didn't know again that, oh, this is a panic attack necessarily, but I knew that this is something that happens to me sometimes and I'm always fine afterwards, but we're driving to the hospital now and I just freaked out my friend's mom. So we kind of pulled in, I'm trying to play it off, but of course they're doing, you know, they do all your vital signs and pretty much all my stuff's normal. So my parents came and then that experience was the beginning of the end for me with mental health, if you will, except it took a few years to get there. So uh, I'm not sure. Do you want me to just go into that right now? Yeah, absolutely. Because what do you mean the beginning of the end? Yeah. So it was just when I say that um, it's not just, again, to be dramatic, it it really is quite literally, you know, the end of my life as I knew it. Um, I, for whatever reason, after that day, my panic attacks were nothing like they had been in the past. They were incredibly severe and not that there's anything really as such as a mild panic attack, but I just mean debilitating and they happened every single day and they happened every day for about three and a half, four months straight, sometimes multiple times a day. And I mean, like there was not one day skipped during that time. And it just very quickly broke me down. Um, I couldn't perform in school anymore. I went from a guy, I'm not bragging. This was the only thing I was ever really good at. I certainly wasn't good at athletics or talking to people or anything. Um, I did exceptional in school and now, you know, you can see that I, I can barely hold on. I can kind of keep it up with the topics that I most like, like math and stuff. But the other things that require even the most minimal work I can't do because I'm, I'm freaking out in school. I'm ending up missing at least one day a week because I'm so tired. It's I really was not just being lazy. I'm not staying home just playing video games. I physically could not go to school. And, you know, I'm working with my parents at this point. They kind of know something's going on. I'm not selling it as bad as it is because I really didn't want to share these things, but they, you know, they knew I ended up in the hospital. They, I couldn't hide this stuff anymore. So we tried to do some things. We went to different doctors and unfortunately no one was really able to help out uh, despite how well-meaning they may have been. And, you know, then summer came because this was all started towards kind of the end of the school year. And, you know, we just forgot about it. We don't really talk about it anymore. I'm hanging out with friends a lot at the time and okay, it's not a big deal. And, as those things progressed, that's when the depression started to sink in. And depression for me, I always try to describe this when I'm telling people, anxiety is very obvious. Even if you don't know what anxiety is, if you're sitting here right now, completely calm, completely normal, and I force you know, a panic attack on you, okay, it's pretty obvious that you just changed your physiology and um, your mental state. Whereas depression for me was this small 1% changes every single day, And then a few months goes by and I look back and I realize, wow, I'm a completely different person that's thinking completely differently. And that was the first time in my life that I turned to drugs to feel something different. I was the last person in my friend group to try any kind of drug. And I'm talking even something like tobacco. I I just I was scared. I didn't want to do those things. I had such bad anxiety that I was terrified of doing those types of things. I didn't have that curiosity that I feel like is actually probably pretty natural for a lot of teenagers to have as long as they don't go um, overboard and do really stupid things with it. I think it's completely natural to have the urge to say, Hey, maybe I want to have a few drinks if all my other friends are doing it. Um, now whether or not I condone that is a different, uh, question, right? But I think it's natural and I didn't have that, but I wanted to feel something different because I think a lot of people think depression is just sadness. 
I would describe depression for me as anger and numbness. And I didn't know that's what depression could look like. So when I say the beginning of the end, what I really am getting at is when I started using those drugs because of those daily experiences that I'm having, that just destroyed me. I went two years pretty much every single day high on uh, you know, something, whether it was just weed, well, I shouldn't say just weed, because I do think weed can have a pretty bad effect if we're dealing with unresolved mental health issues. But then that led to Xanax, that led to alcohol and just mixing those things together, just trying to feel different. And um, I got to the point where really, for lack of better words, I kind of lost my mind and, and I got myself in a lot of trouble. When you say now you said Xanax and alcohol, were there other drugs involved? No. And see, that's what's I think the only proof that I really didn't want to be doing those things is that fact. Every single other person in my friend group has tried pretty much anything you can imagine at least once. I'm only adding these things in as needed. And it was just when I started out with marijuana and then that doesn't do it anymore. So I actually tried Xanax before I ever tried alcohol. And that was because I'm doing my own research, trying to play doctor. You know, I knew that Xanax was used for these things um, because at this point, you know, I'd kind of come to the conclusion, OK, this is clearly panic attacks. This is anxiety. Um, I wasn't sure on the depression, but I knew that those uh, the anxious aspects were there. So I started self-treating by buying this illegally. I only ever added an alcohol to kind of strengthen those things when I felt like it wasn't enough or if I didn't have enough Xanax. So it was a terrible prescription to give yourself. But I, I mean, I cannot stress enough. I swear to people, I was terrified of doing drugs, but I just wanted to feel something other than numb and angry all the time. So what are you doing now to, to help manage it? I know, I mean, to sit down and be able to write a book that requires a certain level of calm that even people without panic attacks and things like that have. Um, but before you even answer that question, I want to go back to when you were five. Mm -hmm. When you look back, was there a precipitating event? Was there a thing that as you look back, you go, oh, I forgot that thing that happened uh, that maybe have, maybe have given some legitimacy to why you would have a panic attack? That's a great question. And I try to be as objective as possible. And I look back. And I've asked my parents, you know, just in case, like, am I missing something here? And to the best of my ability, I can see that the answer is no. Now, I'm assuming if there was something that traumatic that happened, you know, and family's hiding it from me, I really trust my family. And I'm assuming they would only be doing that because they believe that's what's best. But the truth is, I, I really don't think that's the case with the results that I ended up getting um, with the things that I learned, because the subtitle of my book is how I resolved the 13 years of mental health issues naturally. Um, I, I really do believe that this was a body that was sick and a body that had sensitivities to foods and it wasn't identified. And once I kind of worked on those things, you know, that really helped me out. I mean, I don't deal with anxiety anymore. I don't deal with depression that's just something I'm blessed with to be able to say. And I, I really did do that naturally. All right. So before we get into how you did that naturally, mm -hmm. you said you have a sister. Is she struggling with any of these also? Yeah. And again, to the, to the limit that I'm willing to describe it um, later in life, you know, she's three and a half years younger to the day, um, a little bit later in her life. 
end of high school, college and stuff, she, she definitely was starting to deal with um, some anxiety as far as I know. But I, I got to be honest, that genuinely is not something we've discussed in depth. I just I have the general idea of it from what she's told me. Fair enough. So so you struggle with panic attacks, uh, anxiety, depression. Is there any are there any other mental health issues that are mixed in with there? No, when I was younger, there was maybe a minor bit of like starting to develop some OCD symptoms, but that never really came back. And I guess for the record, I'd never got diagnosed with this. So I want to be fair when I say something like this, but I would put pretty good money on if a doctor knew what I was doing, that there would be some kind of aspect of hypochondriasis there. And for those that don't know, that's just, you know, someone that is basically convincing themselves that they have a disease, whether it's caused by some real symptom that they're having that's unrelated to that disease or some made up symptom. And for me, a lot of the physical things that were happening as a result of anxiety, like feeling like I'm actually having a heart attack or whatever, or that constant stress that you carry around in your shoulders, or my stomach would always hurt because I had like this acid reflux and not digesting properly. Um, I would just go online and honestly convince myself that I had the strangest ailments that you just have never heard of and try to come to these conclusions. Um, one of the most embarrassing things that I, I don't really talk about often because I just I don't feel like a ton of people can relate to the hypochondriac aspect, but I'm always willing to share it. Uh, I thought I had a dislocated jaw for like a year, year and a half. And this was only because I had a small pain in my temple area, but I was positive. I believed it at the time. I had nothing else to validate that, but an otherwise smart guy because of these mental health issues, was able to convince himself, oh, my jaw is dislocating. And that can sound pretty far out to people if, you know, they've never experienced that type of stuff. So that's sometimes why I'm hesitant to share it. But it, it is the truth. That's that's kind of the only other thing I could say I was really going through that would have a label on it. I mean, we all have these irrational fears and it's so real to us. I just I just had a buddy of mine, Manuel Reyes, on a, on a previous episode and and he expressed to his wife that uh, they can't watch TV for four months because he feels like the TV is trying to get him to do some evil things. And and they didn't watch TV for four months. And on a certain level, there's I always feel like there's a nugget of truth to our irrational fears. Like, is the TV trying to get you to do evil things on the surface? No. However... It is trying to get you to buy things you don't need. It is it is sending you messages about love and relationships that uh, probably aren't beneficial to uh, love and relationships. Uh, so it, it, on some level, it, it is doing that. So, it, you know, whether your jaw is dislocating or not, you know, I, I have so many irrational fears about. Uh, losing my eyesight or hearing and and things like that 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 I, I remember the other night I woke up in the middle of the night with a panic attack thinking somebody was going to break in the house I just knew like tonight was the night somebody was going to break in a house and so I googled what to do if somebody breaks into your house and I found that to when I have those panic attacks and, and those moments to f go ahead and feed it to, to go ahead and, because what I realized, what really causes me any anxiety is not feeling prepared and, and the not knowing. 
And so once I feel prepared and once I and I feel like I've done due diligence, uh, I feel calm and then I go right back to sleep. But to, to but when I don't validate my fears and and I try to shove them uh, you know under the carpet, then uh, they tend to fester and grow. And it's like if I just give it a little bit of daylight, let it breathe a little bit, uh, find myself calming very quickly. It's kind of like you in a car, like you, you you were so embarrassed because now on a car ride there, you you went from a ten, now you're like a seven, and then you're like five, and you know, so but, right. but you you know, but people who've never had that, they don't they don't understand that, and uh, it could very much look like you're you're making up things. So so you've never been to therapy at all. Well, I I guess I should probably because we're going off the timeline here. I guess I'll finish it up and explain how I worked um, with my first counselor, okay. if that's okay. Oh yeah, okay. Absolutely. So towards the end of high school, in terms of uh, the year I was in, it was my senior year, and I had been abusing those drugs for about two years straight. Now during that time, I also started selling weed myself, and that was just because I could not keep up with myself, the, the things that I was using, I, I could not afford to do that, um, without doing so. And that scared, that probably caused me more stress than anything else ever long-term because I was so afraid of getting caught. Like that was just, I did not grow up that way, man. Like that's not something I was supposed to be doing. Um, not that anyone's supposed to be doing it, but I mean, there was nothing to blame that on. There's nothing to justify it. That's completely on Evan Transu. And I was 17 days in my senior year of high school, which is significant because it was two weeks away exactly from my 18th birthday. And you know how people do those things. They're like, oh, dude, you're 18 in one month. You're 18 in two weeks. You're 18 in a day, whatever. We hype people's birthdays up. And thankfully, I was still reasonable enough in my mind to, to look at that and realize, wow, I'm driving around drunk and high. Uh, I'm selling weed. Uh, I'm doing all these things. If I get caught, doing that at 18 versus 17. Not that I'm not going to get in trouble at 17, that's for sure. But 18, I mean, I might actually go to jail. And at the time I was about six feet tall, 150 pounds. I didn't want to be fighting anyone. I had no business going to jail. So I said, I'm going to stop selling weed. But then this also other aspect came when I was like, wait a second, selling weed is just so I can support my drug habit. So I'm going to have to stop doing those too. And I really did make this pact to myself. I'm like, all right, I'm going to do better in school this uh, semester. I'm going to start off well, and I'm going to stop doing these things. And I was able to do that for about 36 hours. <laughs> um, I still was not getting support because of my own choosing. I, I wasn't bringing anyone in. I wasn't telling them what I was going through. I wasn't telling them I was basically a drug addict. And I lost my mind when I tried to stop using those things cold turkey. Um, I didn't know anything about withdrawal. I didn't know anything about how that can change your mind or how your literal, your biochemistry can rely on these drugs to make you feel, quote unquote, normal on a daily basis. And um, no matter how many times I tell this story, it's it's embarrassing to me, but I share it regardless just because I, I want people to understand what can happen to an otherwise normal guy when they don't get help for, you know, over a decade with mental health stuff. And um, I left school that day, about that 36 hour mark sober. And I looked back on my life and just the things that had happened over the last two years. I now had a 1.9 cumulative GPA in high school, and this was someone that used to get straight A's, used to um, received a recommendation for the gifted program when he was younger, and, and now I'm failing high school. 
Um, I treated my girlfriend at the time awful. I had strained relationships with my friends and family, and I couldn't take it. I really just did not like what I was seeing. And I left school that day. I pulled out of my car, and I, I'm on the highway. I'm only about three, four minutes into driving. I look out to the right of me, and on the highway, there's a school bus. And out of the back of the bus are two kids flipping me the middle finger. It's a joke. It's a prank. You know, they didn't mean anything by it to me. They don't know me. It's a stupid joke. And I had never felt so much anger in that moment ever again or ever before in my life. I, I just freaked out. I started slamming the steering wheel and I'm cursing. And it had nothing to do with what those kids were doing. It had everything to do with all the stuff I was experiencing that I didn't want to deal with. I felt like a loser. I felt like a failure as a boyfriend, as a friend, as a family member. And I just took everything out on that one situation because that was something I felt like I could control. I'm not going to let these idiots flip me off. And they came from the same school. You know, they were like a grade or two younger, but they didn't know who I was again. And honestly, man, again, this is one of the most embarrassing things I could possibly share, but I followed the school bus and I followed them to the point of those guys getting dropped off. It was a very serious altercation that, thank God, no one actually got physically hurt. But at a point in my selling career of selling weed, I had purchased a stun gun like the ones that the cops have. The reason I did this is because I was dealing with sketchy people and I had been robbed multiple times. And I told you, I'm not a fighter. And even if I was a fighter, I couldn't fight because I was just too skinny. I was too small. So this wasn't to actually stun someone. It's just to scare the hell out of them if they try to rob me. And I eventually lost that memory. I'm not sure if I ever had it, but I had to watch a cell phone video of me in that situation in front of my superintendent of my school district, my guidance counselor from school, my house principal and my parents. And what I saw, I mean, basically made me sick to my stomach. Again, no one physically got hurt, but the threats that were made the reaction to something so damn stupid. Uh, that was a very big moment in my life. Um, I was arrested that day for terroristic threats and, you know, owning that weapon. I was kicked out of school two weeks later. I spent my 18th birthday on house arrest because of that. And I basically just watched my life completely fall apart. And that's where it leads up to the counseling thing. I never was willing to get help. I never was willing to talk about my emotions or the things that I was going through. And it took some of these extreme situations and eventually another stupid thing three and a half months later, it, it ended up being of all things that really snapped me out of it. It was a situation with my um, girlfriend, but I started finally working with counselors, except they were the ones that were assigned to me on probation. And I was finally willing to work with them and talk to them. And yes, yeah, so I did work with a counselor, not technically a therapist, I guess, but I had a couple of them assigned to me and they were very helpful despite my reluctance to work with them in the beginning, but eventually I was willing to open up. So I know that's kind of a long way of saying it, but that's how I ended up doing it. And I was, I was forced to do it. So I just try to tell people, listen, man, counselors are awesome. There's no shame in talking to these people, but please do it before you're forced to talk to one for whatever reason that might be. What were some of the insights you got from counseling and therapy? Uh, because, you know, there are, there's still a stigma with some people about going to counseling. And, you know, I, I do one-on-one -on -one coaching with my clients. And, uh, and sometimes for people to say they're, they're seeing a coach versus a counselor, 
uh, is uh, a, a, a gateway into to going to therapy. Um, what were some of the insights that you got from counseling that you still remember to this day? Yeah, it was a tough time. So a lot of it is just in general in my life is blurred out. But the things that I remember is I'm starting to talk about actual mental health, right? And I'm starting to work with these guys and trying to figure out the root of what's going on with me. And I'd say the number one insight that I got was these guys are responding to me like this is completely normal. And not that it is, quote unquote, normal to have a mental health issue, but it is common, right? That is something that definitely happens to a ton of people. And almost all of us are going to have some type of run in with mental health in our lifetime if we, you know, we look at the whole life. And when they're responding to me, like I'm not crazy and I'm not some weirdo and I'm not, you know, this violent animal that I'm like scared because I'm doing these things that, you know, I'm not, not, I'm not justifying my decisions because decisions that I made in my life ended up leading to that school bus incident that day. But I swear to God, Leo, Evan Transu did not make that decision consciously to follow that bus that day. I swear on every person in my family. So I'm feeling like I'm losing my mind. I'm feeling like I'm going crazy. I'm wondering what's wrong with me. And I'm thinking that it's something much more severe than anxiety or depression. I mean, in the sense of like, I'm like, do I have a personality disorder? I didn't understand any of this stuff. I'm like, am I a psychopath? Like, I'm so concerned about that. I didn't understand the irony of being concerned about that, right? But I remember taking an online test and it's like, you got all these different personality disorders and I'm freaking out about that. And they're just talking to me so calm, like, dude, you know, you got some stuff going on and we can work through this and you're gonna work through it and it's gonna be fine. And the way they responded was probably the biggest insight that I got that, hey, Evan, you're not crazy. You're an individual dealing with a real problem or real problems. And these have names and we, we can get through that. And so what were some of the names that they I mean, did they did they name or label anything else besides the anxiety, the depression? No, the only official labels I've ever got were major depressive disorder generalized anxiety disorder, uh, and panic disorder. So that's why I'm very, I'm clear with my disclaimers that yes, do I believe at one point I was a hypochondriac? Sure. Have I ever been diagnosed with that and can say that for certain? Uh, no. And I don't think anyone should play doctor. (laughs) Trust me, I've learned that the hard way. So I just, I'm very careful with what I say with things like that, but no, only those three as actually what I've been diagnosed with. You know, the thing that I love that you said is how they talk to you as if what you were saying was normal because so many people do struggle with different types of mental health issues, whether they feel like a burden or alone or they have panic attacks. Uh, and it's something that, you know, some people experience uh, in a specific time in their life. Somebody, some people experience it throughout their entire life. But, uh, but when you're able to talk to someone who can listen and validate and and make you feel like you're okay and you're going to be okay and going to be better. Um, it, it's very soothing. It's very calming. Mm-hmm, what, for sure. What happened after that? How did you progress from there? Right. So again, I had that. It wasn't even all those things that happened with getting arrested or whatever. It was about three and a half months later, and I had a stupid little altercation with my girlfriend that I'll spare you all the details on. But there's one part that's important because it was what I call my aha moment. And what happened is it's New Year's Eve, coincidentally, completely coincidental. And I convinced my parents and probation officer that I should be allowed out that night. 
And this is only because these people aren't stupid. They only let me out because they thought I was doing well. They didn't know that I was still abusing drugs while on probation and even on house arrest. I was just hiding these things from people. And I learned how to fake the stuff. I mean, it was a crazy way to be living my life. But I went out that night and there were two rules. They weren't that stupid, right? You're home at 1215 and you're getting picked up at 12 by mom and dad. So you have a fun time, but those are the rules. So not much of a New Year's Eve when you're 18 years old, but still better than sitting at home with mom and dad all night. So we went out and my girlfriend and I get picked up at 12 o'clock, just like we're supposed to. And she had only drank, you know, a few times in her life. She wasn't really someone that not that this is a good thing to be able to do, but couldn't really handle it as well because I had had drugs for years from my parents. So I get in the car. I'm cool. You know, I went out, did my thing that night. I was arrogant. No problem. I'll hide this. And she gets in the car, too. And within about 30 seconds, they know she's messed up. So they turn around and they start yelling at her because they didn't even believe I could be so stupid as to also be drunk and high on New Year's Eve while on probation, while getting picked up by my own mom and dad. I think it was so stupid to do that it actually wasn't obvious. So they're yelling at her and a half decent guy would have said, you know what? Hey, listen, I kind of talked her into this this night. Please, you know, don't take that out on her. But I didn't do that. I went home and when we got to my room, you know, I started freaking out at her and I said things I wouldn't repeat on a podcast. And, um, you know, this is someone I cared about. Right. And I made her cry. And it wasn't until I woke up in the morning and I'm sober. And, you know, if you ever drank too much alcohol in your life, anyone out there, I'm sure none of you guys have. But for those that have, you have those like hungover regrets. You're like, oh, I'm never drinking alcohol again in my life. And I had that, but I also had some insights. And the insight that hit me the hardest was just, dude, what a loser you are. Like you're sitting here because you don't want to deal with your stuff and you're taking this out on someone that really cares about you and is stuck with you through these things. And, and you're just projecting right? Like you talked her into doing it last night and then you're yelling at her, not for doing it, but for getting caught. Like what an idiotic thing to be blaming someone for. And it just hit me like a brick wall that it wasn't Evan Transu and his mental health issues anymore. It was Evan Transu, his mental health issues and his girlfriend and his family and his friends. I'm bringing everyone else down with me because of the things that I don't want to deal with. So if I can't change for them, I need to be, or excuse me, if I can't change for myself, I need to be able to change for them. And that aha moment, it wasn't sunshine and rainbows after that, but I started that process. I started working with those counselors and I mean, actually working with them because I've been seeing them, but seeing them and working with them is a lot different. And if you're coaching people, um, I read that, you know, you have a degree and stuff in this type of work, you know, that seeing and working with are completely different things when it comes to therapy or, or counseling or, uh, things like that. And I really just said, I wanted to get better. And I am a huge believer. You ever heard of a book called The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've read that book. Will Smith talks about that book. It's an amazing book. Awesome. And, you know, they say in there, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit. I, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's, you know, when the universe, or excuse me, when you make a powerful decision or you make a strong decision, something along those lines, the whole universe conspires to make it happen. And I had made a decision that this was not the way my story is going to end. Like, I'm not going to be someone who got kicked out of high school. I'm not going to be someone who just never amounts to anything. I'm going to figure this out. I got no idea how the hell I'm going to do that, but I am going to figure it out. And 
again, that decision that was made, the universe just started sending things into my life. God started sending things to my life where I met these amazing people, like seriously, through just random chance that were young adults, but still, you know, three and a half, four, even five years older than myself. And they started mentoring me. They got me into personal development. And that's how I even read The Alchemist. They got me reading books like that and just starting focusing on my mindset. And when I did that, I really started changing as a person and I became a more motivated individual. I became someone that not through woo-woo motivation, but through actual knowledge, realized that he could do probably anything he wanted in his life. And so could anyone else. I'm not ignorant enough to sit here, Leo, and say at 24 years old, when I've never basically kicked a soccer ball in my life other than gym class, that I'm going to go out and become you know, someone that does it pro. I'm not ignorant like that. But when I say I can do anything I want, if I developed a passion for soccer tomorrow, do I genuinely believe that I am someone that can make a career out of that, could enjoy his life doing something with it, whether it's announcing on YouTube or just you know running a, a soccer podcast or being the best announcer ever? Yes, I do genuinely believe you give me enough time and I could figure that out. And that was the personal development stuff that allowed me to do that, which would eventually lead to me just trying different doctors, trying different things, and finally finding my resolution to my mental health and a lot of my physical health issues in the natural side of things. So you read The Alchemist, it, 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 it inspires and instills in you the idea that the universe is working for you, not against you, and that what you put your mind to do uh, can, can manifest itself. And you also had these mentors that, that were showing you a, a, another light. What other things had you put in place uh, to, to help, you know, uh, alleviate the, the panic attack symptoms and, and get you back to 100? Yeah. So I'm not I got to be honest, I'm not sure what eventually would have stopped it, but I, maybe it was just the feeling like I'm doing something with my life because the panic attacks kind of chilled out after high school. Regardless, I'm not saying that meant they never happened, but they weren't a daily thing. I mean, I was still a generally anxious guy. I dealt with some depression, but it was starting to get better. And the things that really relieved those symptoms, though, were ironically the same things that were happening when as a result of me being in that new group of friends. So we were in a sales company together and it was a network marketing thing. I know people have mixed opinions about that. That's fine. I completely understand that. I'm not in the industry anymore personally, but I have to thank it because it basically saved my life. The product that we were selling was a healthy energy drink, and it was a whole health line and and you know just all that type of stuff that you would expect out of those types of companies. But we're jacked up, right? We got this healthy energy drink. At this point, it's kind of summer. Um, and, you know, a few months had passed, and we're doing events every single day. We're doing calls all the time together to try to sell this product. So we're pounding back like four of these every single day. Now, here's the interesting thing. Each can, each energy drink was the equivalent to one solid dose of a high potency multivitamin every day. Well, I'm drinking like three or four. A few months goes by of doing that every single day over the course of the summer. And somewhere along the lines, I realized I feel better than I ever have in my life. Well, I stay with the friends no matter what, but eventually the sales company falls out and I stop drinking those drinks. Again, I'm still around the same people, thank God, but you know, I'm stopping drinking those. And sure enough, a little bit longer goes by and I feel the depression start to come back in. And I feel myself being a generally anxious person once more. And 
there was something that hit me like a light bulb when I look back and was trying to figure out what changed. I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, was this because of that multivitamin? I'm like, is that even a thing? Like I had no idea if that was possible. I just said, can mental health issues be caused by the things I'm putting or rather not putting into my body? And that was like going down the most beautiful rabbit hole ever because natural health is such a, there's a lot to learn in that. But I found my passion in that and I started doing my own research. I got into different certification programs, Institute for Integrative Nutrition, Functional Diagnostic Nutrition, and I'm basically self-teaching myself these principles about health and I'm experimenting and I'm trying different things. And I eventually had some more functional-minded practitioners help me with some lab testing and I'm looking at what's going on in my body and I was banged up, man. I mean, I had my guts all messed up. My hormones are messed up. It's, it's amazing that I didn't feel worse. So I started doing the things that I was learning and I started living a better lifestyle, taking care of my habits, both eating and sleeping, um, working on the results that I got from these lab tests through supplementation and through other natural healing modalities and I basically got better in a matter of six months and I felt amazing. And it was so cool because I had this objective data showing me what was wrong. And then looking back and seeing, oh, you know what? That got better and I started feeling better. And my physical health symptoms that I had listed previously in this podcast, they started getting better too. Some of those have been completely resolved. In fact, most of them are. When I say genes load the gun, environment pull, or, <laughs> yeah, environment pulls the trigger. I cannot say that for everyone, but that is literally the truth for me because I didn't go through any um, serious counseling or therapy that made me look at the trauma that I dealt with in my life. That helped, but that wasn't the end all be all. That was just more motivation than anything. I changed my lifestyle around. I figured out what my body's reacting to, switched those things up, and I cured my mental health issues. And it was the coolest thing in the world to me. So bringing this full circle That's why I ended up writing the book, because there is some people out there that have had similar experiences and have done this stuff. I'm looking at our younger generation, and I am seeing dramatically increased rates of anxiety, depression. And some people write that off to, oh, we just have increased awareness and increased diagnosis. Okay, fair enough. You know what we don't have increased diagnosis of? Suicide. And in the last 15 years, suicide has gone up in every single state in America except Nevada where it went down by 1%. The highest state, North Dakota, with 57% increase in young adults. We don't misdiagnose suicide. That's a pretty obvious thing. There might be, I want to be full disclaimer, yeah, you might not understand it sometimes. It might be, hey, we don't know the cause of death, but that's not enough to justify those percentages. So we are seeing an increase in mental health issues, and that has to be something more than just genes because there's only one generation in that time. Everyone with the bad genes just didn't create a whole uh, family tree of people that are spreading throughout the country. One generation, we're seeing the increase. What's changing We'll look at what we're doing in our my, our environment. So when you talk about supplements, you talk about nutrition, you talk about sleeping, what are the supplements that you – well, first of all, let's backtrack a little bit. You said through your study of integrative uh, and functional you know, nutrition that you learned some things that were jacked up. Talk to us about what that was. I mean, was it a thyroid? Uh, your pancreas wasn't secreting? Like what's going on physiologically 
And then just walk us through the supplement, the eating, the sleeping, and all those. Absolutely. And I will keep this um, as user-friendly or listener-friendly as possible to respect people out there that might not have some kind of medical background. Totally get that. One of the things that I saw that was most sticking out to me was that I had a lot of issues going on with my gut. So the gut is a whole system of things for those listening, but specifically what I'm talking about when we're getting into these tests is more or less what's going on in your small intestine. So the small intestine is where a lot of your foods assimilated, your nutrients are assimilated and absorbed. Well, when you have a broken down gut for lack of more complicated terms and uh, definitions, you can absorb and assimilate a lot of nutrients. So mine was beat to hell. I remember taking the one lab test and um, it was with a naturopathic doctor, doctor of natural medicine. And she had these ranges for you know how well you were absorbing stuff. Mine was so low that it was just like in the bottom thing where like she really could not even detect that I was absorbing much of what I was eating, which is crazy when you look at, that's where I was talking about those malabsorption issues. I mean, I could not gain weight when I was younger. I would just poop it all out, basically. I know it sounds funny, but seriously, for those listening and interested in this topic, I had these giant poops when I was younger. And that was always a joke when with my family. Like, that was just a funny thing. Evan would clog the toilet. Well, no, I'm pooping out all my nutrients because my body's not absorbing anything and thinks that this is all waste. So that's a huge aspect of that. So I figure out there's stuff going on in my gut. Then I look at my hormones and I realize that my cortisol output is not as high as it should be. Now that in fairness was probably because of just being burnt out from going through panic attacks and extreme anxiety and drug abuse uh, for so many years. Cause I didn't get all this tested out till afterwards, but I also looked at my melatonin and melatonin for those that don't know is a sleep hormone. You may have heard of that before. It's kind of sold in stores. I don't know if it should be used like that, but that's a separate conversation. And my melatonin was tanked. So I'm testing this at night when it should be high. That's one of those things that you need to get restorative sleep. And mine's totally tanked. So those are just a few basic examples of what was going on. The supplements were highly bio-individualized. And what I mean is that we don't, with a lot of the philosophies that I learned and the healing modalities that I applied, I learned not to really treat anything specifically when you're talking from the functional perspective. You look at the paperwork and treat everything non-specifically. So some of the stuff's tailored to me, but a lot of the stuff is general principles. So some of the supplements I used were just temporarily like licorice root, and that helps cortisol stay up higher um, when it's low. Um, It helps extend the half-life, basically. I've used adrenal support. I've used liver support to kind of flush out excess hormones because I also had some excess hormones going on in my body. My body just wasn't able to process them. And I've used a lot of things for gut support. So L-glutamine, which is an amino acid. And for those out there, I really just want to, it's not a cute disclaimer saying, oh, you know, you shouldn't take these things. No, please don't take these things until you get it checked by a doctor. Licorice root can be terrible for someone with high blood pressure. L-glutamine can convert to glutamate and basically trigger anxiety in certain people. So it really is a true statement when I say, please make sure you're doing this properly. Don't just listen to some guy on a podcast and start taking these things. But those were some of the things that I did. Probiotics, um, a long list of stuff, but really the lifestyle habits were the most important. And um, I started eating organic. I started eating local. I started eating seasonally to the best of my ability. So with the seasons, you know, if it's winter time, I live in Southeastern PA. We don't have fruits growing. 
I don't eat much fruit. I, I really don't. And I, I trust in that. And it's worked for me. I think organic was one of the biggest things, but then starting to do the other stuff helped out a lot. Actually making sure that I'm getting nutrients in. And then I would say sleep and learning how to actually sleep properly because I would I can prove that 99 plus percent of people are not sleeping properly or optimally, I should say, in today's world. So fixing those things, man, they worked. They worked wonders on me. It's unbelievable. How do you sleep optimally? Like, what's your sleep routine? Now, that is a, a great question. And um, I know that you are willing to share people's handles here, obviously, because you asked about that. So I'm shamelessly plugging myself only because it's extremely complicated. And I want to keep this simple for this podcast. So it's just at Evan Transu on Instagram. Um, I just started a YouTube as well. I talk about this stuff all the time, guys. So if you're interested in this topic more in depth, please uh, feel free to go follow me there. The short for this podcast is this. I learned about the detrimental effects of artificial lighting from a fantastic doctor that introduced me to some even more fantastic research that not a lot of people are talking about. And there is a whole subsection of medical, the medical field that is talking about this stuff, but it is not enough yet. Artificial light, what it's doing to us is the way it's made is that we focus too much on blue light. So if you guys remember high school science classes, you may have seen the light spectrum and you could see that we can only see so much of it. Um, but you know, there's these different colors and blue light is, you know, made up, I think it's like 400 something to the high four hundreds, but we know that the range of 400 nanometers, which is kind of like almost ultraviolet light all the way up to uh, 550, I believe it is, is, and that's part of the green light spectrum. These suppress melatonin secretion. So when you are, when sun, the sun has gone down and you are staring at one of these lights that has this stuff in it, you physiologically cannot produce anywhere near the amount of proper melatonin. And again, I will share those studies with anyone that wants to see them. Harvard was the first one, really, that did any major study on it. So what are those types of lights? Where do you find them? Well, tell me if you guys use any of these things after dark. A phone, computer screen, overhead LEDs, a TV, car headlights. And obviously I'm being sarcastic here because it's in everything. We're all doing it. So it's impossible to secrete the normal amount of melatonin. So the thing is, when you finally go to bed, you're missing out on the most powerful sleep hormone that we have. And also one of the most powerful antioxidants known to man. And melatonin triggers certain processes in the body that clean up our damaged cells. And no one's able to do this properly anymore. It takes three hours of darkness pretty much to get the proper melatonin secretion. So what are most people doing today, Leo? It's a rush type A world, busy, busy, busy. We only sleep six and a half, seven hours. Well, three of the hours you weren't even getting proper sleep. So basically you just slept in, in a way for only three and a half to four hours. And we wonder why we're seeing rates of every single disease go up in our population, even though we have the best advancements in Western medicine and and pills and things like that that we've ever had. And yet all these rates are going up. We literally can't keep up with it because we're doing so much wrong in our environment. So that's just one way that we're affecting our sleep. So I, what are you doing at night? Like, are, are you lighting candles? Are you like, what does that lighting system then look for? Look like, at yeah, no. are, you, are you cutting off? You're not watching Ozark. You're not binge watching that at, at eight, <laughs> 9 PM. 
No, I don't watch much TV. I'll tune into Shark Tank, but I, I don't own a TV. It, it doesn't work too well for me personally, um, so I don't do that. But I am on a computer and stuff. And this is where, when I was talking about give me a follow or something, this is really where we get into the complex stuff because it sounds pretty far out until you know the data and until you give it a try. So humans evolved, we believe at least, to be around campfires at night or something like that. And the reason that this is more validated, this theory, than ever before is because when Harvard did that study and a bunch of other places and um, you know, research institutes have done studies now, it's not just Harvard, we noticed that the red and deeper infrared parts of the light spectrum they don't seem to have that same suppression effect on melatonin. It's always better to be in pitch black, but who's going to do that? It's a very minimal effect that it has. So it further validates this idea that humans evolved to use fire. Well, what are you supposed to do? Sit around in your house at your campfire every night? I know people aren't going to do that. Quite frankly, I'm not going to do that. There are certain programs you can put on your lights at night, and there are certain glasses that you can use that help you out. Um, I'm not someone, I don't have a company where I sell these things. I, they are called blue light blocking glasses. Now, many people have heard of blue light blocking glasses for the daytime use. They're a clear lens that help eye strain. Well, the extreme version of that is one that uses a red tint to actually filter out the blue and green and help you get that kind of natural, like you could stare at an LED and it basically feels to your body at least like you're staring at that campfire. Now, there is a lot more to that. There's a few nuances and technicalities because we basically have the same receptor on our skin that we do in our eye that triggers this light. And that was only recently discovered. So there's a lot to this, but no, I mean, Leo, in my room at night, I have a filter on my computer. I have a filter on my phone. I wear these glasses and I try to spend absolutely no time in artificial lighting after dark. And I totally respect anyone out there that thinks that this sounds nutty. All I do is ask two things. One, if you're going to condemn it, please at least message me and let me send you some research and let me uh, allow you to look at the data yourself. And two, try it for two weeks and tell me if you ever want to go back. I have not had one friend yet that has. What about room temperature? I know that's such a huge part in, in quality sleep. What, what's your room temperature set at? It is. Um, and I try to keep it a little cool and I have some roommates and I thank God that there are people that value that as well. So we actually have it pretty freezing in here at night. Um, I believe the data shows that 68 degrees Fahrenheit is kind of the best, but I think everyone's going to have their own individual thing. But I like it to be cold enough that I feel good when I put the blanket around me. I seem to sleep best with that. And that helps something. What that's most studied for is that it helps sleep latency a.k.a. how fast you fall asleep. So I, I like keeping it cool as well. That's a great point. And then what about uh, in terms of food? Is there a time where you cut off like, you know, I don't eat after a certain hour because it could interrupt with your sleep? Is there? That is an excellent question that no one ever asks. That's uh, pretty astute. Um, I eat a large breakfast, a decent enough breakfast, like it's pretty good sized. I will eat a late lunch, very early dinner, but I do something called intermittent fasting, and I really don't call it intermittent fasting. I think it's probably how we're supposed to be eating. Um, I never, 99 days out of 100, I do not eat past dark, um, almost ever. And just to be realistic, it's probably 95% of the time, just so I'm not being a little dramatic with that, because I you know, go out to dinner every now and then, I guess, with friends or family. 95% of the time of the year, I do not eat past dark. And I try to eat like an hour or two before 
sunset. So again, I was trying not to get too complicated with all this stuff. The reason I didn't mention that originally is just because I don't like to overwhelm people with too much at once. But there's a lot of studies showing that, you know, the food and the time we eat has a lot to do with our circadian rhythm, which is what we're trying to fix when we have um, the blue light blocked at night and we're using those glasses and things like that. So I try to follow that the best I can. I have seen remarkable results from stopping eating like an hour before bed. Like that really affects my sleep. If I stop eating four hours before bed, I sleep like a rock. So I, I yes, I absolutely um, try to keep to a consistent meal timing. And then do you have a overall type of general diet that you're eating? Are you like doing a blood type diet? Or are you doing, uh, besides your intermittent fasting or anti-inflammatory, what are you doing there? I do. And this is, again, one of those disclaimers that I put on for people. You know, everyone's going to be a little different. And depending on where you live, it's going to be different. I personally, at this time of recording, because I've changed many times over the years, have found a paleo-based diet to work best for me. So for those that don't know, I mean, I don't eat you know, refined sugar often. That's like a cheat meal for me. I can do that now because I'm a lot healthier, so I can afford to do that. I don't eat grains. Um, I definitely don't eat gluten and stuff. I I'm react terribly to that. So I eat a lot of meats. I eat a lot of fresh vegetables. I eat seafood. I eat things that are local and again, seasonal to me. Um, I'll eat more fruits in the summer. I'll eat pretty much no fruit in the winter. Um, that's what works for me personally. And I typically only eat two meals a day and they're both very large meals. And that's again, what works for me. So we, we've talked about nutrition. We've talked about supplements and sleeping. Are there daily other daily habits that you have or weekly habits or even monthly or quarterly that you do to, uh, to ground yourself, to recharge yourself. Some people journal, others meditate. Some people go on counseling retreats. Uh, what are you doing, you know, nature hikes? What are you doing to, to ground yourself outside of the food and sleep? You just hit it with the last one. Um, getting out into nature, not only from the scientific reasons of why that's beneficial. I found that Rate it like 18. And I, I seriously mean that. It's not like I hadn't been outside before in my life, right? But, you know, I'd never been camping, never really been hiking. Like, my family just wasn't into that. It wasn't something that we did. And I started doing that myself is, you know, I got, again, I was out of high school, so I had a lot of time by myself because, you know, my friends are still in there and I'm, I'm having a lot of time to reflect. And I just started going outside and going to the local parks. And I fell so in love with it that I ended up setting a goal to hit the highest point in every state in America just before I die one day. I feel so good when I am out in those mountains and I'm just I'm pursuing the the top, the peak. I'm looking for the next height. It is the ultimate fun to me. I could spend the rest of my life out there. I, I really could. And so, yeah, that's like the number one thing for me is I get back into nature that has a lot of scientific reasons behind it. But I think anyone you don't have to be a scientist to know that that's probably what we're supposed to be doing. So I wish I had known that back then because I would have tried to force myself on my most depressed days where you feel like you have no energy and can't get out of bed. Evan, please just get outside for 30 minutes in the sun. Just try to do it. I don't care if you sit the whole damn time. I don't care if you literally walk out your parents' back step and that's all you go to. Try to get outside and get that natural feeling. Being outdoors, being in nature, especially swimming, you know, I'm so fortunate to live in uh, L.A. and there's the ocean there. There's just there's nothing better than I understand. I mean, when you look at surfers, they're just so they got this energy about them and and people who swimming and, and people who, who are who are out in nature. 
Uh, there's just something that makes you feel connected and less lonely in the world. I, I, I love it. There's just really, uh, it's one of the best natural remedies for, for any, for most mental health uh, issues. Uh, right. Evan, Transu, uh, is, there, is there anything we haven't talked about that you feel like listeners need to know? You talked about, you know, how many people have uh, struggled with suicidality, and I know that you've had a few of those thoughts also. What was the thing that gave you hope that pulled you off the ledge? For me, I'm, I know this isn't as uh, sexy for most people, but it, it was following that science and getting that hint that I could genuinely figure this out because you're absolutely right. I, I did have those thoughts and I've learned something. Human beings have an unbelievable resilience and ability to handle pain, both physical and mental. And I sometimes looked at myself and I said, you know what? I'm not like a prisoner of war. And I've heard those guys and girls get out of stories like that. How, how come I feel like I need to take my own life and they survived? Well, I would never make that direct comparison between those two experiences. They're completely different. But if people could put that aside and focus on the concepts for me, I'd appreciate that. Because what I'm getting at is, you know what those people had? One, they're tough. They're trained, right? But the other thing is they know their buddies are coming to get them. Someone's looking for them. If they just hold on another day, they might get rescued. When we're in the worst of our mental health, I might not have been through anywhere near as much pain as someone that's dealt with something like that. But I felt like there was no end. And I'm just like, this is never going away. And so having that practical hope reignited in me to see that, okay, like I can change my life around. I can make some decisions. I can learn and use that brain. Remember, I told you that was the only thing I was ever good at was I was a smart guy. And I finally can use this for something because I hated school. You know, even when I was good at it, I didn't like it. You know, who, what kid does really? I'm using that brain to figure out my own problem and learn this nutrition and learn this science. And when I had that practical hope, that's what did it for me. And in the book, I even say that this is the reason it's being written is to provide practical hope, not motivational woo-woo, not just like, oh, you can do it, Timmy, or you can do it, Sally. No, practical motivation. Here are some things to look at if you've never looked at them before. So I love the name of your podcast because I honestly, man, I just didn't have the guts to put something like that in my book, but that's exactly what I was thinking. I wanted it to be something that people read before they decided to take their own life. Please just read this one more thing. Evan, thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Plug all your things. Where You already talked about the Instagram, but plug it all over again. Where can people find you, reach out to you, get the book? I appreciate it, man. Thank you. So, yeah, Instagram is my most active social media at this time. It's at Evan Transu. Uh, Facebook's also great. I add friends when, like, I can tell, like, shoot me a message. Like, let me know who you are. I'll add you as a friend. No worries. But everything's public otherwise, so you could follow on there. The YouTube is new, also at Evan Transu. Just started that a few weeks ago because of everything going on with uh, COVID-19. I figured it's a great time to capitalize on that. Amazon has the book. It is Overcoming Mental Health Challenges, How I Resolved 13 Years of Mental Health Issues Naturally. Because of the coronavirus, I'm currently giving the book away for free. This is not a gimmick. You don't have to put in your name or credit card. If you go to my Instagram profile when you're listening to this, very likely the link in there is a link to my Google Drive. You can download the PDF completely free. Again, no gimmicks, no BS, just trying to give back during a tough time for people. And then finally, uh, com. I know the exact minute we're recording this. It's technically down because I'm working on some stuff, but 
by the time this is released in a matter of 48 hours, it's going to be back up. That's where you can book me for speaking. I speak in schools all around the country. Um, I use my story to help students increase the rates of asking for help. So I appreciate you letting me shout those out, Leo. But yeah, that's where everyone can find me for the various different reasons. Evan Transu, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. Uh, I always ask ask this of all my guests uh, because I believe that there's there's always one person who's listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Evan? Wow, that's a that's a deep uh, question. I like that. What I would say to them, if I could somehow get this through their head at the time, because I've been through it and I know how hard it is to receive messages during those moments, I would tell them to please before they make a decision like that, know that they exhausted all options. And again, my book's just one small piece of that puzzle. There's a million other pieces that other people have created out there. I say, I would dare you to exhaust all options. If you're going to do this anyway, do you really want to do it and be able to say, I didn't try everything, no matter how weird it sounded, that I possibly could? And that was the decision I made for myself at one time, and it worked out. And I would share that with them so that they know even someone that's been on the brink himself, I applied that same message. So I'm not, it's not just BS. It's something I've done in my own life and it worked. So imagine how many other people are out there that it would have worked for. And unfortunately they never got the opportunity to do that. I think that's what I would say. Evan Transu, thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you listeners for listening in. Please share it. Go to iTunes, rate it five stars. I thank you all who have done that. And once again, If you're seeking one-on-one coaching, go to thrivewithleo.com, thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching, and we will see you soon. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks, Evan.